Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey Pediocast. My name is Dimitri Filipovich, and uh, joining me in studio is uh, Andrew Berkshire and Jack Hahn. Jack, Andrew, what's going on, guys? Not much. How about you? Not much. I should uh, lay out the scene right here. I know since this isn't a video podcast, we're, uh, we're recording this in, um, I don't know, what would you describe this, Jack? Uh, it's like a conference room of sorts? Study room? Yeah. S- study yeah. room in the library? So we're, we're at the McGill uh, Faculty of Commerce right now, yep. which is where I went to school back in the day. Uh, in the middle of construction season, so, so it's nice to be indoors and have a little AC going on. Yeah, and um, yeah, we're recording this on, um, it's a Monday, August 1st. Um, Jeez, it's already August. Yeah, it's already August. The, the off season's flying by. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our season starts in 24 days. Yes. Um, when, do, when, does, when does the World Cup start? I feel like that's when it's our like, hockey season starts. It's like September 17th, I think. It was. I remember when I looked, it was way later than I thought. So I was yeah. like, usually training camp starts around there, but I guess they're just like... Pushing the season back a week or two. Yeah, it's going to be a really condensed season, too, I believe. I think, yeah. I think uh, it's going to be pretty hectic. Um, all right, so for people who don't know Andrew, obviously, you're one of my uh, co-workers at Sportsnet, and, and Jack Indeed. does a bunch of work at uh, SB Nations, have his eyes on the prize, and, and you do some work at Hockey Graphs. And uh, I guess most relevant to our discussion right now is uh, you actually also work here at McGill with, uh, with the women's hockey team. Yeah, exactly. So I take care of uh, video and analytics for the McGill Martlets women, um, women's hockey program. Uh, so uh, in the past two years, we've been consistently ranked top five in the CIS. Uh, we finished runners-up at Nationals last year. And, um, you know, going back to, I think, uh, 99, I think we have, I mean, I wasn't there for, all, for, for any of them, actually, but um, we have quite a few national championships under our head coach, Peter Smith. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a nice little humble brag there. Um, all right, so I, I think where I want to start this discussion is, uh, Jack, you had this presentation at the Vancouver Hockey Analytics Conference back in, I think it was April, uh, where you were sort of trying to instill some of the stuff that you've come across in, in that job that you just described, where you do a lot of video stuff and then you interact with the coach and the team in terms of uh, optimizing, I guess, personnel usage and sort of looking for trends and stuff like that. So I think that is a really interesting um, place for us to start because... Uh, I've also done a lot of video work myself with the NHL product, but I always wonder, not having necessarily worked hands-on with someone like that before, like the process of you noticing something on tape and then actually seeing that play out on the ice when you tell the coach or, or you alert them to certain trends that you see. 
Right. Well, when somebody asks me what I do for for Peter and the rest of the coaching staff, I, I mean, my general answer is I do computer stuff for Peter. So right. Peter is is an older um, older person, an old school coach. You're saying he's bad at computers. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> but but the, like my overall philosophy is I want to reduce Peter's workload. Right. So my point is not like I'm gonna give him some numbers and then tell him to do this and that, but it's just. How like my um, the idea behind what I do is how can I help Peter sleep better at night and sleep more hours because mm. coaches don't sleep a lot right you guys don't know and a lot of it comes down to preparing his video for him and also um, distilling that into um, statistical insights right so you know things as simple as you know play her more play her less don't play her with her like that's the level of information I want to give him right right. Um, so it would be that and perhaps two or three relevant clips, 10 seconds long for every game, let's say. Right. That's, that's a very small quantity of information, but that's what we strive for. Right. So do you ever find yourself interacting with the actual players themselves in terms of stuff you've seen on tape? Or do you let that, the coaching staff actually handle most of that? Um, no, Peter likes to do Peter that. Likes to do that. And so generally, I, I wouldn't... Right. I wouldn't do that. Well, so the thing that I find interesting in terms of, you know, it's one thing for us, for example, to see notice, let's say a certain player struggles with a breakout scheme out of their own zone or a certain player gives up their own blue line a lot on defense. Right. And and you notice that and then actually sort of um, kind of alerting the players to that and, and having them target those certain deficiencies in the opponent's game. I always wonder hockey is such a fast game. And we always hear that as like a criticism of the work we do sometimes like, oh, like, you know, it's not like baseball where it's just one on one and you can mm. kind of isolate stuff like that. It's, it's so fast and free flowing. And I wonder whether you can actually um, target specific traits like that to actually optimize your how the players are playing i think we can but it's a gradual process right um it's you know if you say that your defenseman doesn't play a very good gap and it shows up and let's say the zone entries against or the shots against maybe he doesn't know or she doesn't know and then the first step is letting that person know right but the second step which is to um improve that that could take months years maybe it's never going to happen mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, knowing is half the battle. Right. Right. Yeah. And then what you do with that information, obviously, is, is the next step. Uh, I mean, Andrew, you like, you work with SportLogic data a lot, and, and you're sort of, you guys are tracking all this stuff that we've never even really thought about before. I mean, like, I always, it's really cool, and it's definitely descriptive. It tells us a lot about what happened. But I, I wonder about whether uh, the next step is how we use that data to actually um, influence stuff moving forward. Yeah, it's really a matter of figuring out what statistics are important, and specifically, I find breaking it down into different portions of the game. Like, uh, I looked recently at the way that uh, Markov and Subban defended entries against, and one of them likes to step up in the neutral zone a lot, and that happened to be Markov. Mm -hmm. People think PK is the more aggressive player, but the way that they kind of worked it out either with each other or through the coaching staff was that... Markov can't really skate that well. So the way the Canadians usually play defending zone entries isn't to step up on the blue line. It's to try to stick with players who are attacking by skating backwards and closing lanes. That didn't work for Markov. So he decided that he was just going to step up on the blue line, force more dump-ins, and then PK would be the guy who would go back, shake off the four-checker, grab the dump-in, and then break out. And it worked really, really well. They were the only pairing that really 
found success that way. So you can see how those things break down. But I don't think we're there yet in, like, uh, you need to up this stat in order to get right. more wins, right? It's more figuring out. I think you can find out more from syst- about systems mm. and the way that uh, how, like, characterize how different players have success right then we can see what drives success right and then put those players in those positions to succeed based exactly. on like similar characteristics or one guy's really good at something right. and other guys like struggles. what i suggested was that like shea weber cannot do pk's job with markov because right. he doesn't have the agility that pk has he can shake off four checkers physically but he can't then break out and then uh take the puck out of the zone that's not one of his skills right so if shea weber were to play the markov role on a different pairing with say a nathan Bolu that could see some reasonable success. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Petrie has the skills to play with Markov. The problem is that those two together haven't had the greatest history. So that's, again, that's one part of the game, defending zone entries, right? So there's all this other stuff that you have to look at to figure out what would be the best pairings. But for that specific thing, right. those pairings should work. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing right now that uh, we went nearly 10 minutes without actually... I mean, we, we just started now kind of dipping our toes into the uh, Subban and Weber trade, but it, it's... Uh, Kudos to us for showing that restraint. But now that we're now that we're there, let's uh, let's get into it. I know that uh, you guys have both written about that, and you both obviously living here in Montreal uh, followed PK Subban very closely and 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 developed uh, some emotional ties and enjoyed watching him play, of course. And and uh, and you've both written about it, the trade as well. So I guess let's uh, let's get into it a little bit here. Now. Yeah, I think Jack's less emotional than me. I'm the emotional one. Jack's the cold, steely, well, steely. You're eyes. Just calculating his yeah. thoughts right now. Usually, but but I have. A couple personal anecdotes about Subban that you know I can share later on, but mm-hmm. um, I think that if you say that PK Subban has character issues, um, you're a very wrong, and two, you're placing emphasis on the wrong things. Right. Mm-hmm. So I used to work for the Canadians in in their marketing and PR department, and so I worked hands on with Subban for about a, about a year. Um, so we saw each other maybe two or three times a week during the whole season. But was I, he late every time? I, looking back, I don't know, but what I do, what I do know is during that entire year, I've never seen or heard Subban say a bad word to anyone about anything yeah. ever. Right? I couldn't say the same things about some of his teammates. Right. Well, I mean, Andrew and I were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but it, it is interesting about how like this whole he's a problem in the room and stuff, and you'd think like. Uh, if you were one of the players, like just like you know, the season is so long, and you have these ups and downs, and and of course, when you put with twenty or so guys in a locker room like that every day of the year, every every day of the week for the full year, then, you know, there's gonna be clashes of personalities and stuff. But you'd think like during like a losing streak or something like that, like having a guy like Subban who just seems so cheery and uplifting would be only positive. I, I, I don't know. That, that entire angle to me just seems so like far-fetched that I, I don't even think we should spend that much more time on it because we should talk about like the on-ice product yeah, more than yeah. actual these wild intangibles that I don't think anyone really believes. It is sort of like a little bit of a straw man. Um, I think, okay, let's, let's talk about the on-ice fit because, uh, Jack, you wrote about sort of Shea Weber in terms of what he can and can't do. And I, and I, I thought it was really interesting what you were talking about. Like, he's good at this stuff, but then he's really bad at this stuff. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know, like, do you want to just dive into a little bit of what you were writing about him? I mean, I believe that Shea Weber is a good player with a lot of quality tools. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that Subban has a much better toolbox. Yes. You know? like, the one, like, the only bad thing I could say about Subban um, in terms of the way he plays the game is I believe he, he's not making the most of his shot on the power play. Yeah. He likes to set up on the blue line. Um, he gets blocked a lot. He doesn't shoot from close in enough. Whereas Weber doesn't have that problem. Like, Weber's 
Weber has an excellent shot. It's better than Subban's as it is, but I think... He the, pinches much deeper. Yeah, like the, like the software, the decision-making behind using his shot is... In Weber's case, I believe it is better. Yeah. I, my one question with Subban, though, is with his, in regards to his shot, is he strafing out further because he's overconfident in his shot getting through? Or is this a more conservative approach because the coaching staff doesn't want him pinching deep because he's perceived as risky. And if he pinches deep and his shot gets blocked, he's, you know, out of it. And Markov can't catch the guys on the two-on-one, right? Like, Markov cannot be your last man back. Right. So PK kind of has to, by default, be the last man back on the Canadiens' power play. I wonder if this year in Nashville, playing with a Roman Yossi or a Ryan Ellis, if we're going to see him pinch a lot deeper. Because I know watching him uh, for the Canadian junior team or for the Hamilton Bulldogs, or even with the Jacques Martins Canadians, he pinched a lot deeper on the power play. And actually, like, his less productive years, his first two seasons, he had more power play goals per year than, like, mm-hmm. the last two years. Right. Which is kind of crazy. His assists are off the charts yeah. now, but his shooting has dropped off for whatever reason. Right. I think it's shot distance and specifically the Canadians pushing him more onto the right side on the power play, which takes away his one-timer. Yeah. I mean, I... I think all three of us are pretty high on Subban in this room. I, oh, yeah. I'm kind of more interested in the in the Weber angle, honestly, because like I think that anyone that's viewing this trade from a rational perspective, using stuff that's rooted in reality, realizes that mm-hmm. Subban's the better player right now, and he's younger, and he doesn't have that terrible contract that Weber has. So I mean, it's pretty clear that you know it's sort of spilled milk at this point for the Canadians. You kind of want to optimize it. And I do. I mean, Jack, you wrote that uh, Shea Weber. You still think that he's like a really good player at his position, but you wonder whether the position he's playing still really even exists anymore in the NHL, which I think was a, a really interesting way to put it because you do see some of this stuff. Like I think opposing players are pretty clearly intimidated by him in the in when he's in his defensive zone. And right? you have to believe them when they say that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think just from watching it, like when you see guys like approaching him sometimes, it's like they like sort of hear his footsteps a little bit. Like they sometimes make a decision a little bit quicker than you'd think they would otherwise against a, a different defender. And that's a real skill. But then you also noted that, you know, sometimes he kind of would prefer just laying back and trying to throw that hit, which gives the guy an opportunity to make a play in the, when he enters the zone. And, you know, the smart players can make those decisions in fractions of seconds and, and, and hurt him that way. And by the time he goes to hit him, then the puck's not even there anymore. So it's kind of... I mean, I, I wouldn't say that Weber is not a smart player. Hmm. I, I honestly don't know him and the way he plays well enough to, to say that. But just perhaps that his approach to the game doesn't drive results as much as you would think. Like, that's, that's how it would put yeah. it. Right. I think he knows where his skill set is and plays very tightly within that. But perhaps too tightly like uh, if you watch game tape for Nashville he like he just does not like touching the puck at all in the defensive zone it's really weird like he just does these like little short passes to Yossi all the time right and whenever he does try like a breakout pass it's like a 50% chance it's intercepted he's just not very good at it so like maybe it's to his benefit that uh, he's so cautious at not playing the puck right and he plays he, he does play very well without the puck and you can't argue with players that they say like they don't like playing against Shea Weber. I wouldn't like to get checked by Shea Weber either. Right. I wouldn't like to get my face smashed into the glass like yes. Henrik Zetterberg. Yes. But at the same time, like I know Mark Scheifele got a lot of press this summer going on a radio station, I believe in Toronto, saying that he would much rather have Shea Weber on his team because he hated playing against him. Mm-hmm. And then I looked up the stats, and it turned out that against Shea Weber head-to-head, Mark Scheifele had like an 85% goals-for percentage, and against Subban... He was like 50%. So it was like, okay, 
I, I guess you don't want to get hit, but you still have better results. Right. You know, like, so sometimes I think uh, player opinion is not exactly trustworthy. Well, and I think uh, I saw a friend of the podcast, Mike Johnson, talking about this on Twitter with back and forth with Patrick O'Sullivan, where he was saying that, like, oh, yeah, O'Sullivan what, kind of buried himself there. Yeah. I was like, and Mike Johnson was like, yeah, well, I used to play. And when I used to play, I the players I kind of dislike playing against the most were the fast ones that, you know, just always kept you on your like you on your heels and you didn't know like what was going on and it was so hard to keep up with and it makes sense that obviously there's like the physical component to it and you don't really want to get beat up a lot. But I mean a lot of these guys like dive face first in front of flying pucks and stuff like and you know, that's it's the whole thing about enforcers where it's like, oh they're gonna, you know, police the game and, and protect right. guys because because of fear. It's like a lot of these guys are, you know, getting paid to be out there and put their body in harm's way. Like I don't think they're gonna be that scared of it. Yeah, I feel like the fear component is a lot smaller than people think. Yeah, and like sure. even if you hate necessarily playing against the Shea Weber, you're not going to be afraid of them unless like in a seven game series I could see physicality having a bit more of an impact because like attrition over the seven game series. Yeah. But especially in the regular season, like whenever people would talk about like, oh you gotta get an enforcer to stop the Matt Cooks and Brad Marchands of the world. If Matt Cook and Brad Marchand were afraid of enforcers, they wouldn't be in the NHL. Yes. You know, like Matt Cook did fight Evander Kane and got one punched, you know, right. out. Yeah. And then the next game he was back, he probably gave somebody a headshot because he doesn't care. Yeah. That's how he earns his money. And Brad Marchand is going to slew foot and clip guys in the knees constantly, and it, he's not afraid of anybody coming after him. Right. And we see all the time with some of these dirty hits, it's like, you know, you, you, you screen grab it, and it's like they have all these, like, Milan Lucic is on the ice when a guy gets concussed. Exactly, and it's like, right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So. I don't know what, what if you're running the Canadians. What are you doing with Shea Weber to put him in the best situation to succeed? It's tough because I think the problem the Canadians have right now is that they don't have a number one defenseman anymore. Because I don't think Shea Weber is that. Mm-hmm. But they kind of have no choice. Right. So if Nathan Beaulieu can't fit with him, it's going to be really hard to maximize that lineup because uh, Mark Barbario is a, a really good player in terms of driving possession and driving offense, but against top competition he just gets slaughtered because he has like his turnover rate is obscene right like he does so much stuff with the puck and it's exciting and cool to watch but like every second play he's turning it over yeah. it's, it's crazy so he can't play that job with uh with shea weber markov isn't a first pairing defenseman anymore without pk suban carrying him around jeff petrie might be their best even strength defenseman mm-hmm. which is kind of tough for him because he you know, struggled in that job in Edmonton. Right. There's a bit more support here, but right. I, I don't think that there's any way that they can structure that defense that's actually going to be better than last year. I think that they'll have to just kind of divide the the matchups between the three pairs as best as they can, you know, like not overload one with the top matchups and rely on their deeper forwards this year and more carry price. I, I feel like their possession numbers are going to drop pretty bad this year because – in terms of, uh, at SportLogic, we count something called possession-driving plays, which I'm trying to get them to rename transition plays. Right. But it's basically moving the puck up the ice with control, okay. right? So controlled exits, controlled entries, uh, carries across the red line, all that kind of stuff. Neutral zone passes forward. Right. Uh, so the best forward for the Canadians in doing that last year was Lars Eller. The best defenseman was P.K. Subban. Mm-hmm. So they lost both those guys. And Andrew Shaw is terrible at it. He doesn't carry the puck ever, which, no disrespect to Andrew Shaw, if I played with uh, Patrick Kane or Jonathan Taves or Marion Hosa, I wouldn't carry the puck right. either. <laughs> but I don't think that he's capable of doing that at the same level that Lars Eller was. He's just not the same skater. He doesn't have the size, the reach, the stick handling. Right. And 
Shea Weber can't do it at the same rate as PK. So I think they're going to suffer pretty severely in terms of possession. So are you like... Are you guys emotionally bracing yourselves for, like, the reality that Carey Price might come back and be really good and none of this might matter? And then people are going to be like, oh, like, where are, you, where, are your, where are your stats at now, you nerds? Yeah, I mean, that, that's going to happen no matter what, <laughs> right? I mean, Carey could have a tougher year, though. I mean, he right. hasn't played for a calendar year, yeah. so we'll see about that. And he could, I mean, that injury, that's a little bit worrying. Mm. You never know if it's going to come back. He's had knee problems for four years now. Right. So I mean, it's tough carrying the full franchise on your yeah. back. I mean, Big time, Jack. What do you? Where, where, where's your head at? You're just kind of picking your spots here. I would agree with everything that Andrew says, um, but there's also another thing that I want to add is, you know, we talk about emotions, mm-hmm. and we also talk about the eye test being not very reliable, or you know, certain stats being more repeatable and more relevant than others. And working with the team and working with um, high level athletes in, in two sports, because my full time job is in tennis. But in my opinion, the biggest source of noise, which prevents objective analysis of what's going on, is our, our emotions. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just very worried when you know front office makes a lot of emotional, um, emotionally based decisions. Yes, I worry about the outcomes. Yeah, that, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I worry well, about that. Radulov seems good though, at least. Yes. We'll see if he's as, as great as build. Mm. I've talked to a bunch of uh, players or people who watch uh, like uh, KHL, and they're like, legit, Radulov is the third best Rus- Russian in the world. It's Ovechkin, Malkin, Radulov. And I was like, all right, mm. we'll see how that works out. Yeah. If he's actually still that good at 29, like the Canadians could be all right, you know, like to have that depth to have Pacioretty on the first line, Radulov on the second line. Well, I think that was a no brainer kind of roll the dice just because it right. is such a, a one-year yeah contract. one-year deal and you know if the canadian if for whatever reason the canadians struggle and they're out of the playoff mix i'm sure and he's scoring a lot of goals that yeah. becomes an asset you can at least get picks for or something like that so it seemed like a, a wise investment and i think that's like kind of the weird thing about bergevin is that like in a lot of ways like most gms probably wouldn't sign radulov just because of his reputation right and the same with alex semen and trading for zach cassian and he does try to get those kinds of players once in a while and he is a shrewd negotiator like he's not like a hundred percent crap gm right like i think he's a great cap manager yeah but a good bond villain yeah very good bond villain looks like jeff goldblum so (laughs) he's got that handsome thing going for him great style but uh, in terms of player evaluation he's got these huge blind spots and i think a lot of this started with when he first took over he didn't believe that P.K. Subban was a top-pair guy. And so they pushed hard on that bridge contract, and it just backfired so hard. And it almost, it almost seemed like they took it personally mm-hmm. that he would win that Norris and then demand the money that they promised him when he signed the bridge contract. And they kind of did the same thing with Alex Galchenyuk. It's like they don't like to believe that the players that they have in their own system are as high-level talent as they actually are. Right, And that is... You know, that could be enough to be a death knell for this generation of the Canadians. Yeah. Well, okay, so I wanted to ask you because um, something that I was keying in on a lot last year with the Canadians was uh, the job Michelle Therrien was doing, and particularly with the breakouts out of their own zone. And, um, you know, a, a lot of it got kind of swept under the rug just because you know, Carey Price was injured and people were just kind of were like, oh, well, we can't really judge the Canadians without him. You should just, yeah. It's kind of like a lost year, sort of. But... It was one of those things where their possession numbers actually did go up, and they were, you know, definitely an above-average team in that regard, even though 
Uh, like when I watched them, I, I saw so many inefficiencies with the way they were playing. And I remember early on in the year when they went on that winning streak and Elliot Friedman did this thing in his 30 thoughts where uh, he highlighted how uh, the Canadians were going against analytics by dumping the puck out of their own zone a lot. But just because they had all these kind of uh, smaller, faster players, they were able to retrieve it a lot in the neutral zone more than your typical team and highlighted all pick like, you know, cherry picked all these examples where it led the goals overlooking all the other times where uh, they were sort of neutering P.K. Subban by, you know, instead of having him just do his magic and create stuff, getting him, getting the puck off his yeah, stick. Yeah, just lobbing it out in the yeah. center ice. which always struck me as a Nonsense. curious <laughs> strategy, but, you know, for some reason people really didn't, weren't discussing it much, I feel like. Yeah, it's weird because, like, a lot of that possession impact, I think it came down simply to better players. Like, uh, if you look at what the Canadians were dealing with the year before where they were a really bad possession team, their fourth line center was Manny Malhotra, who had like a 35% Corsi. Yeah. They had uh, other fourth liners who were terrible. And then they acquired Jeff Petrie at the deadline. And that possession impact didn't ha- happen as strongly at the end of the last year, but in the playoffs, it was there. Mm-hmm. So they brought in Tori Mitchell to be their fourth line center, who, you know, he was playing third line in Buffalo, but he was great on the fourth line. Right. Paul Byron was huge on the fourth line, that speed, and he is great at driving possession. And Jeff Petrie on defense, trusting Nathan Beaulieu a little bit more. Right. I think they just, and for some reason, whatever reason, uh, Alexi Emelin had like a crazy good possession year last year. Like I don't know if you noticed that, but it was just out of the blue. He, right. I, I guess it was chemistry with Jeff Petrie, but even away from Petrie, he had a really good year. Unfortunately for him, he also happened to have like the worst PDO of his career. Yes. So everyone thought he sucked last year. Right. But it was a lot of things that seemed more player-related than systems-related. And that fast approach definitely worked with that team. Like People don't know, but the Canadians actually had like the second or third best four-check in the entire NHL last mm-hmm. year. And it was like, against teams like uh, Anaheim, Los Angeles, San Jose. They were right. the other top That you would think teams. would be like your typical Right, the big teams, teams yeah. that just punish people. But the Canadians would just beat players to pucks constantly right. with their speed. And... Same thing in the neutral zone is they had, uh, I believe they had the highest puck retrieval rate in the neutral zone of any team. Mm -hmm. So they were able to take advantage of those dump outs, but it's like, it's one of those situations where, yeah, that was working, but it wasn't the best thing to do either way. Right. Because like you can use your speed like that and it'll be fine. But if you use your speed to actually carry the puck instead, then you've got a team on their heels instead right. of a team that can just hang back and wait for the dump. And I think it is a little bit of a an opportunity cost thing in the sense that like you could retrieve the puck, but you, you've also put yourself in a kind of unnecessary puck battle. You right. probably had to exhaust a lot of your energy, and then all of a sudden you're probably going to just dump the puck in and change as right. opposed to actually and doing something with it. Especially in the neutral zone, like your puck retrieval rate, they were the tops in the league, but they were like 53%. Right. So like every time you dump out the puck it's still 47% chance that it's coming right back in your zone. So, yeah. like, I, I tried to highlight this a few times last year, how inefficient that is, but, you know, the Canadians don't care. Yeah. They'll continue to do that next year because they just have less talent on the blue line to move the puck now. Yeah. And I'm sure that Andre Markov will be, you know, another step slower, even though he seems to be working out hard this summer. Right. Well, I mean, as I said, he's not getting any younger. Right? I guess none of, none, none of us are, right? Yeah. Well, I'll get him a bit older. Um, Jack, when you're... Uh, when you're keeping track of stuff for uh, for the McGill hockey team, mm-hmm. what sort of stuff are you prioritizing the most? I mean, at the highest level, it's shot differentials, right? right. So, of course, like I, I was having this discussion with our head coach this morning, actually. Not plus minus. Well, I, I mean, you know, if you if you say that it's plus minus, but for shots, for shots yeah, <laughs> yeah. it makes it a lot more right. digestible for. Yeah. But but um, but essentially, I told him, look. Uh, shot differentials today is goal differentials tomorrow. Yeah. And if we're not playing for goal differentials, then what are we doing? 
Right. You know, like that's the ultimate goal, right? Like everything that you want to do on your team is to set yourself up for a better goal differential tomorrow or next week or, or next year. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of the point of, of coaching hockey, right? You want to make the most of what you have and you want to improve. So, so that's our number one tool. And then we use some other things to, to explain because I think shot differential does a very good job of telling us where we are, but it doesn't tell us how we got there. Right. And mm-hmm. there are some players, um, you know, a couple I'm, I'm thinking about in particular who are very, very strong possession players in terms of shot differentials, but you would never know it by watching them and you're not really sure how they get there. Mm-hmm. So then we have some other, you know, let's say how they play across blue line. So whether they drive entries or exits or prevent entries and exits against, it kind of gives us some clues about what to do. And beyond that, I, th- I mean, that's, I'd say 90% of what I do because right. um, I believe that analytics, especially in our case, is a subtractive activity, which means that we should use it to tell us what doesn't matter and then spend less time on that. Mm-hmm. Because a coach's time is precious, a player's time is precious, my time less so because I organize this stuff. So, you know, like 100 minutes of my time, I like to say, is worth as much as 10 minutes of the coach's time and one minute of the player's time. So that's kind of how I like to work. Right. If I, you know, if I don't distill it down, then I'm not doing my job. And that's kind of, um, you know, Andrew, you're actually making, let's say, my job more difficult let's say if we were to buy sport logic (laughs) i would i would have a lot more to sort through right and and that's actually like one of the things that i'm concerned about is i don't want to add something if it doesn't um if it doesn't help us um get more value right? right well that's i mean we're still in that infancy stage where we were discussing this before descriptive versus predictive and uh it is really cool sort of knowing how we get there but it's also important not to lose sight of like what the ultimate goal is, right? Yeah. So it's like you, when you have all this new stuff, there's going to be a lot of uh, sort of pitfalls where people are like putting a lot of importance on stuff that might ultimately wind up not being that important. Which isn't to say that you know we shouldn't be excited about these times, but I think that like five years from now we're going to look back at this phase and be like, oh, stuff we thought was important wasn't actually, and stuff we may Absolutely. not have necessarily thought of was all of a sudden mm-hmm. like a really important thing. Well, I think we'll probably be moving away a little bit from like an individual's coursey as well. Like, right. We'll be able to better isolate what is that player's talent, whether or not they relied on teammates to produce that number or not, mm-hmm. or opponents, right? So there are a lot of players, especially in like 48 to 52% range, because nobody likes to admit it among the analytics community, but there is a very substantial error rate in those numbers mm-hmm. uh, because it's all tracked by old guys in the rafters pressing buttons on an analog system who's on the ice and who's not and is really poorly done especially like uh, if you go back and look at the Corsi numbers for uh, the outdoor game between the Bruins and the Canadians last year they had P.K. Subban playing like 38 minutes of that game and it was like the difference was on those jerseys they couldn't tell the difference between P.K. and Petrie right right so P.K. had like this huge amount of ice time and petrie played like seven minutes and it's like well that that's not right yeah. and they might have gone back and changed it now but there's stuff like that all the time where players with similar numbers will get uh attributed different stuff and you can see specifically like patrice bergeron is not gonna be playing a bunch of ice time with the fourth line for example but over time those error rates will be smaller but in that 52 to 48 percent range i i'm always skeptical about how good that player is or like plus or minus two percent relatively 
probably a little bit less relatively, but if you can find something that they're good at, like say say if Chris Russell was a little bit better, mm. he happens to be very good at <laughs> controlled exits, right? <laughs> right? But let's pretend that he's not right. an abismal possession at player. Everything he's, else. Just, yeah. he's just mid-range kind of crappy. Right. If he has great exit numbers, great passing numbers, most likely he's not the person driving that poor result, mm-hmm. right? So you can look at and see uh, what was happening with his teammates. Was he paired with the wrong guy and that's what's driving it? Or is it a little bit of random variation? And you can explain away some of the error rate that way, whereas before it was just this is this end yeah. of the story. Maybe if Chris Russell was a bit better, he'd have a contract by Indeed, now. Indeed, that's true. <laughs> I'm sure he wishes he was a bit better. Yeah. I mean, with what he's asking, maybe he should just lower that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree with that. Um, guys, thanks for taking the time to come on the PDO cast. This was pretty fun. Thanks for having uh, me. People can follow Andrew at Andrew Berkshire on Twitter. And uh, Jack, you're ML underscore Han, right? Yep. H-A-N. And uh, read all your writing at the, at the sites I listed before, and, uh, and we'll be back soon. So thanks again, guys. Thank you. No problem. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast. Yeah.